Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. everybody and welcome to the book pod today we travel to rural new south wales and to the property of sam vincent a canberra-based writer and academic who a few years ago returned to the family farm to work beside his father david the decision to join the family farm was prompted by a serious accident one sunday the chute of david's wood chipper had become blocked and ignoring the safety signs he had used a metal pipe to try and fix it David's hand was mangled by the wood chipper, and although very lucky not to lose his hand, the recovery was long, and it meant he would be incapacitated for quite some time. Enter Sam, who, to his mother Jane's relief and his father's eventual acceptance, Sam became David's farmhand, literally, as well as in the manual labourer sense of the word. Sam's new book, My Father and Other Animals, How I Took on the Family Farm, tells the story of this unexpected turn in Sam's life, and it is a cracker of a read. Sam, welcome to the book pod. Thanks for having me, Corey. Congratulations on this wonderful story. It's a story about your journey from urban dweller to the farmer, but it's also for me a story of long-held family respect and regard for the land, something that you have obviously innately inherited as well as through your experiences with your dad, David. And this desire that your father and your mother and now you have to work with nature, not against her, and not trying to push her and push the farm into being something that it perhaps isn't. Can you tell me about your property, Golian, and how do you describe the land where you are and how do you describe its nature? So Golion is quite a small farm by Australian standards. It's 650 acres uh, in the Yass Valley, north of Canberra. It's quite a long and skinny farm, which means that geographically, even though it's small, it's 
it's quite diverse in its um, environment. So the eastern end and the western end is floodplain, which can be quite lush, and there's a, a nice creek running through the western part. But the middle is uh, quite hilly and rocky and what my father sometimes calls thirsty country because it doesn't, doesn't always grow a lot of grass. So it can be harsh and it's, uh, its summers are really hot, its winters are cold, we sometimes even get snow. So it's not the easiest place in Australia to farm. How far away are you from Canberra? Uh, about 40, 40 minutes drive. So we're actually pretty close to the northern suburbs, but we're surrounded by quite big hills. So it feels like we're much further away, which is nice. So Sam, the, tell us about that particular day when you received the call from your mum, Jane, that your dad had had this accident. What were you doing at the time? And obviously first thoughts, of course, are for his welfare, is everything okay? But when you went up to the farm, there were some important discussions to have over those next few days. Well, how did it change your life? Yeah, I think I was just sitting around at home one weekend in Canberra when I got this phone call. And then when I went out to the farm the next day, it was kind of a sense of here we go again. My dad was in his late 60s at the time. And this was the just the latest, the most spectacular in a, a series of, of accidents. And I think we all realized without having to articulate it that this couldn't go on and something would have to be done. Either he and mum would sell the farm and move or I would step in. And and, and that's what I did. Uh, initially, it was really just to keep dad out of harm's way. I didn't even think I'd be taking on the farm. And it took years to even have that discussion. It was really just to keep him out of harm's way. But I found that I loved the work. I started working with him two days a week at the time. I I had a lot of time. I was only working part-time at ANU doing some research and uh, I guess an unexpected part of working with Dad was that we got to know each other a lot better. We were never distant, but I guess in in the way of a lot of male baby boomers in this country, he's quite laconic and doesn't open up easily. So it was it was nice to have, I guess, shared non-communicative activity to bond over, whether it be building fences or planting trees or him teaching me how to how to read the landscape, all these things that I I didn't know how to do, even though I had grown up on this farm because it had always been the domain of, of him and mum, the farming. I love that uh, relationship and I'd love to talk about that again in, in a minute. Getting back on dad's decision to actually buy the farm. So this was not an inherited farm through generations, although your mother's father had been a farmer but it was something that came to your mum and dad when your father was actually working as an economist in Canberra and I gather my feeling from reading your book is it was let's have a kind of a rural lifestyle for our kids you know a bit of land for them to grow up on it was never really intended to be a generational farm was it? No and yeah dad was working in Canberra and they wanted to live outside of the city and it started off as a small parcel of land and they kind of bought neighbouring parcels of land to build it up to its current size. And definitely when they arrived, it wouldn't have been a profitable farm, no matter how you farmed, because of over a century of poor environmental practices. Uh, in wintertime, there wasn't much grass at all because there weren't really any native perennial grasses growing here. It had been overgrazed by sheep for so long. So that wasn't even an option. It was it was more the, the rural lifestyle. And then um, for 20 years, my, my parents kind of worked on it when they could on the weekends. My dad especially has a huge work ethic and energy. And then when he retired from his city job, he started working harder on the farm than I think a lot of people work at their jobs before they 
quote unquote retire. So that's when he really thrust himself into it at, around the, the start of the the new century. And yeah, got it up to its current current state where it's thriving. It's a it's a biodiverse hotspot. The creek has been um, restored to what it would have resembled. Um, before early settlers trashed it through overgrazing and land clearing, it, it's unrecognisable from what it was when they arrived. And I guess that's something that I only learned through working with my dad, through understanding all this hard work that he's put into it. Well, I love the lessons that are learned as you are with every fence post that you repair and every calf that you deliver together, you have this huge learning curve. Your father also, I think, is learning a bit from you as time goes on too. For example, your idea of a fig plantation on the property, which you have cattle and it's you continue this, you continue your parents' dream of sustainable living. You're very respectful of land regeneration processes. And I'm deeply admiring of that, Sam. Was it coming to your own, developing your own philosophies about the farm and land and land ma- and an animal management? Was there much resistance from your dad at all? Is it, is it, was it a, or was it a kind of a passing on of the baton? Did he realize that it actually was going to become a generational farm? Yeah, he came around to that. Definitely in terms of the, the farming side of things, I'm continuing the, the style of farming, regenerative agriculture that my parents practiced. They both studied agricultural science at Melbourne University in the 1970s, and they now say that they reject just about everything they were taught. Um, and I, I can see that when they started off doing things like not using any synthetic fertilizers, brewing compost tea, um, putting leaky weirs in creeks, running cattle in mobs tightly pressed together through several small paddocks so that most of the paddocks uh, are just recovering to allow grasses to recover fully. All these kind of practices, I can see that when they would have started doing them, they were all considered a bit crazy. And now it's it's gathering more mainstream appeal. And I, I'm definitely not resistant in that regard. I'm trying to kind of increase some of the good things they did, like planting even more trees. They planted thousands of trees here. Yeah, I want to plant more. I guess the one farming difference between me and my dad, he was initially a little bit hesitant about having an Aboriginal ochre quarry protected under New South Wales legislation. He he didn't resist the process. He just kind of sat it out, I guess, and let me take charge of that. But that's been a really, really great. Tell us about that, Sam. Tell us about the history of that and the extraordinary achievements that you, you and the local community have made in that regard. Yeah, so we have a hill on our farm. Uh, we'd always called it Bald Hill. It's kind of weird. You can tell it's geographically, geologically different. It stands out all by itself. It has this red soil. And a few years ago, uh, an Indigenous archaeologist mate of mine called Dave Johnston was looking for looking for stuff on the farm. I was really keen to learn how people used to live here hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. And, and he found a little, a little tool called a thumbnail scraper, which he estimates to be about 5,000 years old and it would have been used to gouge ochre out of this hill and we've since found a lot of a lot of ochre and you can see where people have been mining it so there were a few ochre quarries around the Canberra region but some of them are now under suburbs so that what makes this one special and ochre was used by Nunnall and Nambri people for birthing ceremonies, weddings, funerals, coming of age, initiation ceremonies. And so we've undertaken this process over a few years with the local 
communities with their they were kind of driving it i just wanted to support them to have this site protected under new south wales heritage law uh, which means that no one will be, ever be able to build on it we're still able to graze it but it's uh, we manage it a little bit differently and and as far as i'm concerned it's it's property of Ngunnawal and Amri communities they bring out their their families when they want to spend time here yeah it's been really fantastic and and learning also about how rare this is on private properties I want it to be an inspiration for other other non-indigenous farmers in this country to realize that you don't have anything to lose by undergoing this process you have a lot to to gain new knowledge of your own land and how people were using it before before you arrived it must have been a big a shift in thinking, I think, for all of us, Sam, who have watched land rights and the processes evolve over two or three decades to actually find yourself at the forefront of this and, I suppose, reconciling, confronting your own views about this, this, fa- this piece of family land and what is land ownership and who owns the land. And the feeling I get very much in your wonderful book is you and your family's enormous respect for the land, that you are custodians in a way. But what did the process kind of throw up for you, the, the issues? Yeah, you're right. I always think now when I wander around Golion that I'm so lucky to be looking after it just for a, a brief time and, and I want to do as much as I can to help it its ecological function while I'm here, but I don't own it. Someone else will have that responsibility of managing it one day. I guess in terms of the Oka Quarry, it's really changed my view of this place. When I was a kid, I, I, even though I didn't know about farming, I spent a lot of time on the farm, just wandering around the back paddocks and building cubbies and stuff. And I never even thought about dispossession that previously there would have been Aboriginal people living and enjoying this property and now I think about it nearly every day it's it's very sad but also it's inspiring to think that the Aboriginal history of of the property doesn't have to be spoken of in the past tense that we've now got this project this process going forward and it even has a a new name we no longer call it Bald Hill it's called Deroadaura which in the Ngunnawal language means yellow ground for the ochre that's found there which is really makes my spine tingle that um yeah this kind of ancient place is being revived in a modern context. I love that. And I love the fact that you're now living there full time on the farm with your partner, Lauren, and your baby, Orlando. Where are mum and dad right now? Uh, We had a pretty rough night with baby Orlando, so they're resting, I think. But at midday, I'll take Orlando for a walk. She needs a two-hour nap, and I love to have her I'm going to go and check the cattle. They might need moving. And then I'm going to go out to the creek and see what's happening there after all this rain. One unexpected aspect of becoming a father is how compatible I find it with with farming. Just about all of the cattle work I've done this winter, checking calves twice a day, moving them to new pasture. I've done with Orlando. uh, We've planted trees together. We've built a fence together. Sure, it it takes a bit longer than, than usual. And it requires a bit of pre-planning. Like when I was building the fence, I made sure that all the tools were already on the fence line and I'd done the noisy banging in before she was with me. But otherwise, yeah, we do a lot of work together. So it's been lovely to combine fatherhood and farming just as I find writing and farming really compatible. I get a lot of inspiration walking around and often um, if I'm struggling with some problems with the writing, they'll kind of... Uh, rectify themselves while I'm walking through nature without even thinking that I'm thinking about them, and I clearly am. 
Well, Don Watson always says that walking is the best way to step away from your writing and then come back to it. He finds it incredibly refreshing and he insists that there are no ear pods in ears or podcasts mm. or radio or footy or, or anything like that. I concur with that. I think that, that there's nothing quite like walking. Your parents had originally had an idea when you were when you started the serious discussions about the farm and its future, there was a suggestion that they might go and live on the New South Wales coast by the sea. Have they done that or are they still at Golion? Yeah, so they, they live on the New South Wales coast in a, a beautiful little village um, surrounded by National Park. And uh, they kind of haven't stopped. They haven't really retired. They've just created a huge veggie garden and dad's turned the backyard into a, an orchard of all the things that he, he couldn't grow here because the winters are so harsh. So he's got an avocado tree and several pink grapefruits and oranges. And so they're still pretty busy and actively involved with land care and dune restoration. And, and so they, they'll never stop. I think it's, they need all these projects and being outside and working with nature. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. So, Sam, why the book? What prompted you to write the book? Uh, my first book was published in 2014. It's very different. It's a work of participatory journalism about Southern Ocean whaling. I spent five months living at sea with Sea Shepherd activists. And I went to Japan several times writing about whaling culture there. And I loved the process of writing a book and I wanted to write another book. And my publisher at Black Ink wanted me to write another book, but I didn't know what it would be. Uh, I had several meetings, didn't really come up with any good ideas. And then one day my editor, Chris Fike, asked, well, what was happening in my life? And I, I'd said, well, I've started working with my dad on the farm. And he thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting. I guess I'd taken for granted how we are such an urbanised country and for a lot of city slickers, the world of farming is quite an esoteric, mysterious one. And I also realised I'd, I'd already started writing the book because I was starting farming with no knowledge whatsoever. I kept a lot of notes for myself for future reference. I'd keep in this little notebook called Farm Notes in my moleskin pockets. And, and there was a lot of funny stuff in there that would translate well to, to, to the book. Uh, my dad is quite eccentric and he'd, he'd say things like, oh, let's, let's see what the ants are doing if it's going to rain today. And I'd say, what do you mean? And he'd flip over a rock and look at how frantically the ants were running around as, as his way of gauging whether the air pressure was dropping and they were preparing for rain. And I thought, oh, that's pretty, pretty cool. And I'd put it in my notebook uh, just because I thought it was interesting, but it ended up being something that I'd put in the book. So yeah, it kind of happened, happened by accident like that. And then, and then uh, I signed the book deal in 2017. I deliberately wanted heaps of time to work on it, partly because I didn't know when the farm succession would end. And then it really became my pandemic project. I started writing the book at the start of 2020. Mining it with farming and, yeah. And you've had this extraordinary ride. I mean, I feel like somebody of your age has in the last five or seven years experienced absolutely everything that farming life can throw at you. You had the drought in, you know, 2018, 2019, and then, of course, lockdown, which must have been still, even though you were on the farm, still a little peculiar. And now, of course, floods in recent weeks. It never ends, does it, Sam? Yeah, Lauren actually mentioned this yesterday. We were talking about how time-rich we used to be, and now my life is much richer, but it's, it's certainly busier, and it's, it's changed a lot the last few years, not just the drought and the flood. Becoming a father, moving here with Lauren, mum and dad moving down the coast, and the amount of responsibility I have 
not just responsible for 130 odd cattle baby and and living with my partner here but these 650 acres um, every single little decision I make on the farm has environmental land management implications and I take that very seriously it's it's a great it's a great privilege but also a big responsibility so it's always at the back of my mind uh, whether the cattle have enough grass or not just that whether they're about to start overgrazing a paddock in a way that would start negatively impacting a native perennial and then I'll move them so so yeah life is life is busier richer and the flooding I think since early August the house has been struck by lightning three times we've lost power three times so it certainly has its its challenges but it's it's sunny now and I can spend some time outside in the in the veggie garden later on I think in the book you say you're doing a course on holistic farming and I wonder if you can tell us what holistic farming is and what have you learned from this so holistic management kind of falls within this broader umbrella of regenerative agriculture which is quite recent which means that there's no one definition that's it's open to greenwashing the definition of regenerative agriculture I like is that it's it's farming in a way that that benefits the commons, whether it's uh, improving water quality, air quality, carbon sequestration, biodiversity. So focusing on things that are broader than simply your crop yield or your calving percentage or your bottom line, basically. And within that holistic management, it's mainly to do with cattle grazing. So it's this idea that that the farm is basically one big, ecosystem uh, everything you do is is going to impact the broader ecosystem so uh, with the cattle the the farm has uh, nearly 40 paddocks and the cattle are moved through them in a circuit the amount of time they spend in each paddock is determined by how fast the grass is growing so if you think about your listeners in the suburbs how often they mow their lawn in summer in spring you have to mow it a lot and then it starts slowing down in summer as the grass dries off it's the same with cattle so right now the grass is growing crazy fast so I move them every three days or so but in summer I'll slow that down and it it means that by the time I get back to the first paddock in the circuit it's it's about a year since the cattle have been there, which means that not only do they have all this cow dung to fertilize them and, and, and they've been munched, which prompts new growth, but they've they've had all this time to rest and recover, which is is emulating how herd and predator ecosystems function in the wild. If you think about North America, these huge herds of bison being moved through the prairie by wolves. So they're densely grazing, but they never get back to the same bit of pasture too soon which allows recovery and and we've had the same thing in australia uh when there were megafauna so that was the last time there were these huge comparable grazers and then and then a lot of people would argue including myself that that role was overtaken by fire with with aboriginal fire stick farming the fire kind of played the role of the mouths of these herbivores and since white settlement that's kind of stopped so Obviously, I'm not a farmer with native species, but I'm trying to emulate how the landscape once did function. I'm focusing on the function rather than the form in a way to, to bring, bring back some, some things like old native perennials that we're seeing um, coming back into the panic that weren't here over the past century or so. Really? That's amazing. And don't we have an awful lot still to learn from First Nations land management? Yeah, absolutely. That's been a really nice aspect of becoming a farmer, learning about 
the different kinds of burnings and the effect it has on different environments and, and, and plants. Even just spending time with these elders, Namri and Nanawal elders, and seeing what it means to them to be on country again is really inspiring for me and increases my love for Golion and what was Golion before it was called Golion. I love that you said earlier about, about writing and farming being such lovely companions, and I wondered whether you might give us a little reading perhaps from your book somewhere. I don't know whether you have a particular passage that you would share with us. Yeah, sure. Well, the, the passage I'm going to read, it was, it was the first year I started working with my dad. And I guess it was when some tension started creeping in. We hadn't yet had a discussion about succession. And my dad was still of the opinion that I, I should be a, a go-getter and, and get a proper career. So what I'm going to read right now is actually the, the first part of the book that I wrote. I, I wrote it for, as an essay for Griffith Review a few years before I started working on the book. When we were kids, my sisters and I weren't allowed to watch TV during dinner. The risk of seeing John Howard was too much for my parents to bear. In the months after he became Prime Minister in 1996, Mum and Dad wore their opposition proudly, chortling of his imminent demise and slapping a Don't Blame Me, I Voted Labour sticker on our dusty family van. But as the Howard months became the Howard years, their mood turned first to frustration Dad no longer referred to him as the miserable little man, but as the little shit or the little dickhead, and eventually to censorship. Should the PM slip through their lo-fi parental block, unexpectedly popping up on the 7.30 report beside Kerry O'Brien, he could expect an incoming missile. But I, for one, relished what televised glimpses I could manage. Those bushy eyebrows suddenly plucked to make him electorally palatable. The chunky bulletproof vest under his shirt after the Port Arthur massacre the loud shirts at apex summits, the louder wallabies tracksuit on his morning power walk. He was a strange sort of fashion icon. My favourite item in Howard's wardrobe was his Akubra hat. Reserved for visits to marginal rural electorates, it was always accompanied by a drysabone coat, irrespective of the forecast, and a pair of R.M. Williams boots. What I found most intriguing about the hat was its pristine condition. Flat-brimmed, symmetrical, and impermeable, it was so different from the hats my father wore. Hatty, smelly rags of things, stained lurid pink with herbicide dye and full of holes to facilitate melanoma growth. I turned 30 in the spring of 2014, my first as a farmhand. In honour of this new direction, and largely in jest, three friends gave me an Akubra for my birthday. It was, its label informed me, the Riverina model one of the largest, deepest and widest styles in the Kubra catalogue. Named for the agricultural region in southwestern New South Wales where my mother was born and where my grandfather once farmed. It was only when I took it off and studied it, flat rim, symmetrical and impermeable, that I realised what I'd been gifted, Howard's hat. In becoming Dad's deputy sheriff, I resembled George W. Bush's deputy sheriff. And wearing it made me feel as much of a phony. A hat came between father and son, interrupting what I'd naively construed as a budding bromance. The thing was hard to ignore. I had to doff it as I entered the ute to avoid hitting my head on the roof, but putting it on the dashboard made visibility difficult. Dad thought I looked ridiculous, and he said so. The bigger the hat he quipped on a near-weekly basis, the smaller the brain beneath it. Because as well as Prime Ministers courting the pastoral vote, this suspiciously clean, 
oversized melange of rabbit pelts was the headgear of hobbyists, of weekend warriors. In New South Wales, they are derided as Pitt Street farmers and in Victoria as Collins Street farmers. The difference between them and me was Pitt Street farmers have high-powered jobs on Pitt Street. They can be hobby farmers because they have jobs to support their hobbies. What was my job? I wasn't a farmhand because Dad wasn't paying me to help him at Golion, and by his own definition, Golion wasn't a real farm. I wasn't an apprentice because that implied the acquisition of a trade and the eventual promotion to master. There was already an incumbent farmer. We had not discussed succession. I was more like an unpaid intern, a work experience kid with no guarantee of future employment. Well, things have changed, Sam. You have a child, you have a partner. Tell me where mum and dad are living. Did they make it to the New South Wales beaches? They, they did. And, you know, and I guess this was their second retirement, but I would say that my dad will never stop being busy and energetic. He's since built a magnificent garden shed in the backyard and, and converted the rest of the yard into a citrus orchard. Uh, he's, he's growing everything down there that he couldn't grow here because it's too cold here. So he's got an avocado tree and all kinds of pink grapefruit and lemons and oranges. It looks magnificent. Uh, and he's still mentoring in a very positive way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting reading that passage now. I was getting a little emotional because things have changed between me and Dad as well. He definitely understands that uh, even though he saw Golion as a hobby farm because he had this full-time job in Canberra for so long, he's come to accept that for me it's my principal job uh, and then I'm also a writer. Yeah, he's accepted that and, and stopped wondering when I'll become a public servant or a lawyer, which is really lovely. And I think he, he realises that with the, the figs as well, there's a different opportunity to, to make, make some money. Uh, cattle prices are high. Uh, my overheads are pretty low because I don't need to pour fertiliser and pesticides on like a lot of farmers do. So, so yeah, he's, he's come to accept that I'm more comfortable than initially he was feared I would, I would become. Yeah, it's really nice seeing that transition. And, and now I've got... Orlando as well, and, and Lauren's really settled into the farm. She's a, a freelance writer and arts curator, and it's working well with her, living in nature as well. And she's a fantastic cook, so that's a nice way that we, we share the farm together, bringing in things that we can cook together. Sam, it's a, it's a beautiful book. I, I loved every page of this book. I loved the relationship with your dad, who I gather now has obviously read it, <laughs> and I presume he's very pleased. Yeah, he did send a really nice text message only a few weeks ago. He said he appreciated it a lot. Well, it, it is a real love letter to your dad, but it's a it's a wonderful study of father-son relationships, which, as you said at the start of our interview, don't always uh, evolve easily. But certainly I think you've, you've shown us that through a mutual love, in this case of the land, uh, something really wonderful can um, abound and... And the future that you have with Lauren and Orlando, and it's it's very exciting to me. And so, what about writing, Sam? This was your original chosen career, and you said earlier that that nature and farming cohabit very well with writing. One inspires the other. Are you still finding time in this busy schedule for writing? I have a big essay in the November edition of the Monthly, which just came out about 
native Australian foods and our ambivalence towards them and, and our growing acceptance of them, uh, which was interesting to work on. It was a really fun assignment. It was very hard to write. Uh, not because of the farm, but because of the baby. So that's been been a bit of a struggle. So it might might take a few years before I'm as productive as I was, but that's fine. That's the way it goes. I'm working with my agent on a, on another book idea, but that won't be for several years. I, I want at least five years to write it, I think. Yeah, and this summer I just want to spend as much time outside with my family and, and reading for pleasure as well. It's been a few years since I, I read for fun. Well, that sounds like a wonderful ambition. And of course, we are looking forward to seeing you next year at the Sorrento Writers Festival, where you'll be on a couple of panels talking about most interesting subjects, including this wonderful book. Sam, I'm, I, I really commend to everybody listening, My Father and Other Animals, your wonderful memoir, or I suppose uh, this is an ongoing project, actually. I really can't wait to read the next chapters as you and your farming career evolve in such interesting directions. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sam Vincent, the author of My Father and Other Animals. Thanks, Gary. It's been really fun. Thank you, Sam. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.